Hi friends, happy Monday. I hope you are doing very, very well. Today, I am so excited to share another conversation with my very good friend, Anne Molesky. Anne has, you know, as I've said before, every uh, certification that there is in music education, and she is incredibly uh, well-informed about all of the ways that students learn music, that our student musicians interact with music. And one of the things that is so unique about Anne's approach to music education is that because she she has studied all of these different approaches and because pedagogy means so much to her she has been able to synthesize that uh, all of that knowledge all of those pathways of musicianship and find this core commonality that doesn't water anything down but instead highlights what these pedagogical approaches have in common and that is this idea of active musicking so this is a conversation not centered around how to use a specific approach to music education, but it's more uh, zooming back in our lens and just looking at what is good teaching, regardless of the label that you want to put on it. You know, um, this is a fire robin idea. This is a Gordon thing. This is Kodai. This is an orphan inspired thing. Zooming out from all of that, what is the commonality that is really just about the students? just about the students themselves and what they need from us. So that's what we're talking about today. But before we jump in, I just want to make sure that you have heard someone verbalize that the work you do in your classroom is valuable. Whether you've started seeing students yet this year or not, whether you're still in prep or if you are in full uh, first weeks of school mode. The work you do in your classroom is valuable, and the work you do in your classroom is not based on how organized your bookshelf is, or how color-coded your binders are, or how uh, analyzed your song repertoire is, or anything like that. I know in the first weeks of school, there's a lot going on as far as people sharing new ideas and sharing about their bins with their beautiful labels for unpitched percussion. And for some of us, we can look at all of those things coming at us on, you know, Teachergram or Pinterest or whatever it is. And for some of us, that is really exciting. And for others of us, we can get really caught up in all the things that we haven't done compared to other people lives that we see online you know so I want to just make sure that someone has verbalized to you today on a Monday that the work that you do is incredibly valuable just because of who you are that's it it's just because of who you are and how you show up for students so recentering this again just like we'll talk with Anne today uh, recentering this conversation about what is best for students Okay, with that said, let's jump in to this conversation with Anne Molesky about how students learn music. My name is Victoria Bowler, and this is episode 26 of Elemental Conversations. All right, Miss Victoria, what are we talking about today? Hey, hey. What are we going to talk about? Let's talk about active musical experiences you say active music making I say active musicking yeah let's talk about all of those um student-centered ways of teaching music yeah love this um so this can really probably be best framed as how you and I both approach music education and the way that kids learn best 
kind of period in and outside of music education. Right. And this is, um, Mm. very, very fresh for me on the daily (laughs) because I watched my two very young kids, um, experiencing the world, gathering information based on their experiences. Um, you know, my youngest is going to be two on Monday and, um, the day this comes out on August 30th (laughs) and, um, She is learning, her speech is way more advanced than my oldest was at this age, just because she has an older sister who talks all the time. But anyway, the point Mm. being, she learns like a new word every day because she hears it and then repeats it based off of whatever it is that we're doing that day. And so all of these experiences that happen in our daily life, um, eating breakfast, you know, getting in the car, going to the park, all these different things she's drawing from to build vocabulary Mm. based off of her experiences. And so everything that happens in the music room is doing exactly that, right? So when we have our kids come into our classroom, we are not saying today we are going to learn about quarter note. Here's a quarter note. This is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. Here's how you say ta. Let's read the definition together. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not what you do. And you don't do that with little kids either, right? You're not like, oh, here's a donut. We had donuts this morning. Here's a donut. <laughs> this is what it looks like. This is how, you know, you don't do that kind of stuff. It's just like, oh, I'm having this delicious thing. What is this called? Well, I heard my older sister say, oh, yay, donuts. And then she's learned because we have donuts every once in a while in our house that that's a donut. We also eat other things. But anyway, so the idea is that we have all of these, these active doings, these active musicings, as Mm -hmm. you say, or active Mm -hmm. music making, as I like to say, Mm -hmm. same thing. Okay. Same thing. All of these experiences of the doing, the verb, right? So that they can draw all of that vocabulary, all of that literacy from those experiences, and then use that information to create more informed experiences after they've learned some of this literacy stuff based on what they've done and their experiences. So for me, how children learn best is in that experience play-based environment, which in our music classrooms is active music making. I love that. I love that. And I think the real star of the show is the donut analogy (laughs) because, because imagine uh, that we are going to, this is the first time that your youngest has seen a donut. But instead of saying, here, have a donut and eat it, mm. we're like, now l- sit there and listen to me. Let me tell you about this donut. It was made, uh, bah, 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 the Dutch, blah, blah, blah. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> Googling how donuts were created right now. Right. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Or, or saying like, um, this is the chemistry behind why we add these ingredients in this way and this is the chemistry of yeast and this is what yeast does to it now let me take you to this factory and this is how it's all created okay and then we say all right now Anne's youngest knows all about donuts i also googled where do donuts come from and they are they have roots in early middle eastern cuisine but they were introduced to america by the dutch I heard that on uh, Stuff You Missed in History. Well, uh, stuff you, you Missed in History class on a podcast. That's great. Okay. Continue. <laughs> but if sure, we yeah. say, like, okay, so now I've explained all about a donut. And now Anne's child knows what a donut is. Right? Mm-hmm. But the big thing that was missing is Anne's kid did not eat the donut. And so effectively what we're saying is eat donuts 
in music. And then you say, hey kids, what does this donut taste like? And they're like, oh, I taste cinnamon. I taste this, blah, blah, blah. I taste this thing. I'm not really sure what it is. And then you say, aha, what you've just described is a donut. And I think that's where we can cap off this analogy. But the idea is that students, oh, Anne has something else to say. Go ahead. And now you make your own donuts. (laughs) No, well, we could make our own donuts. But also, are there rules about where we eat the donuts? Are there rules Mm. about how we eat the donuts? I let my kids just eat donuts in the back of the car. They get powdered sugar everywhere. (laughs) We clean it up later. And they fully immerse themselves in the donuts. No, I'm kidding. Go on. Continue. (laughs) Continue. I love that. I love that experience, though. Like, all jokes aside, I love that framing of active musical experiences being just the way kids learn anything, which is by Mm -hmm. having your hands on the thing and experiencing the thing firsthand. I cannot learn about quarter notes through your knowledge of quarter notes. Children will never learn about the pentatonic scale, even though you know all sorts of things about the pentatonic scale. That's not how learning works. Learning does not happen when kids sit there silently and listen to you talk at them about the pentatone. They need to use the pentatone and then notice the characteristics. And then at some point you can say, hey, that's the pentatone. But you labeling it and you telling them about it from a theoretical, this is how donuts are made perspective, that has no bearing on whether or not they can use it and whether or not they can use it in community and whether or not they can use it to, back to the pentatone, to make their own their own song. So in so much of this active music making stuff, we are going through this constant process of just getting out of the way. Get out of the way. The last Mm -hmm. time so many of us were in school ourselves was in a college lecture hall. And so it makes sense that when we say, I'm going to teach music, what we mean is I'm going to talk at people about all the things I know. And so we have to go through this process of relearning effectively relearning how people learn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that point about the college lecture is really, really important. And, you know, we've talked about this in the context of like how even we find ourselves teaching our colleagues in workshops or courses or whatever, because of the way adults are kind of primed to, to learn, not in this way that we know is best to, to teach children. Right. And that's a, that's a completely different deal, but this idea that, I loved what you said about how I can't learn about quarter note based on your knowledge of quarter note, mm-hmm. right? Like I have to have my own perceptions. I have to have my own experiences in order to make that come alive for me and for it to have meaning. Otherwise it's just, it's just purely translating. And there's a difference between like, mm. you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I shouldn't admit this, but I Let's will. have another analogy. And no, I think no. you struck gold on the no. first one. Let's see where no. this goes. Is that about donuts? So when I was, I've admitted this to people inside of um, Sequencing Solution, but not, maybe not publicly on the podcast. But anyway, so when I was in high school, I took French. I was not very good at French, but I went all the way to French three and I always nailed my final project. Have I told you this? I always nailed. I love this. I love where you're going with this. This makes a lot of sense. Keep going. I always nailed my final project because I could go and play, um, play a French piece of music for my final project and my French teacher would go nuts for it. And so I'd always like get a hundred percent on my final project, which was 40% of my grade. Oh my God. 
<laughs> like, I'll like we could let's not deep dive into all of all of that. Like, that's a very loaded story, right? And from a lot of different directions about me and my French and all the things. But anyway, French class was not my strong suit because all I knew how to do was to mm-hmm. look up the translation, look up how to conjugate the verbs, and then like write out a sentence. I could never listen. I could never speak yep. it. I could only ever do the translating. And so if you start off a music class where kids are coming in and they're just, and you're like, this is quarter note, blah, 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 blah. And they know how to do the translation. They don't have that meaning assigned to them. When we teach children the way that I know both you and I do and many of our colleagues is where kids come in, they experience the music that's building a context for you to extract the vocabulary to have Mm -hmm. that translation moment, then it's useful to students and they can do something with it. So it's not like, here's the stuff, now go do the music. It's Mm. go do the stuff, here's what you've been doing, now go do it even more completely and make decisions and edit and compose and do all of that kind of stuff. Because not only do you have a context, but you have the translation in context that you can apply mm-hmm. other places. So, yeah. I think that that I think that that framing of it in an experience that so many of us have had of taking a global language class where we were writing things on papers and we were doing like multiple choice stuff and we would mm-hmm. even have to like know how to conjugate verbs. And by all accounts, our professor was probably like, yeah, they know Spanish right? Yeah, they know French. But actually, if you were to try to very, very simply have a conversation in that language, you would be completely lost because all you know how to do is replicate what your teacher has shown you, right? And this, um, my ORF level one teacher shared and this goes off you know your story about the piano thing that has a lot to do with some of these conversations that we've had about assessment right Mm -hmm. and assessment is so or active assessment is so tied to this idea of active music making uh and then the other thing is i my orf level one teacher when she was explaining this process of imitate explore create she was saying uh imitation you have to imitate that's so important but that's the first step right you know what I mean and and even though that's a slightly different uh kind of angle of this conversation I think it applies when we think about how much imitation and how much regurgitation and how much how much are we asking students just to kind of rinse and repeat copy and paste in the music classroom as opposed to crafting experiences where they test the parameters of Mm. pitch, right? We're gonna test the parameters of lengths of sound and really use students what they already have, which is a very natural curiosity to know how things work. And so instead of, again, coming back to this idea, instead of like talking at them about music, you're going to actually music. And that's where this word musicking comes. It is uh, not something I created. It was um, kind of coined, developed by this guy, Christopher Small. Uh, And in some sense, it's kind of like academic people making up words to make themselves seem even more academic. But on the other hand, I actually, I really, really like this idea of I am musicking. I am musicking. What are we going to do today in music class? We are going to music. We are not going to sit there and listen to me talk to you about music. Right. Yeah. And I mean, on the same same token, like I did not invent active music making. I first came across that that 
term with the Alliance of Active Music Making, which is mm. a group of individuals who is all about looking at different pedagogical approaches and how we can teach kids best through different modes of active music making and different um, pedagogical approaches. So, which, you know, I'm such a nerd about. So, um, it just, I it so closely, it's so candidly, maybe is a better way to say, mm. um, explains explains my philosophy in that like what you said about musicking mm-hmm. we want to be doing this active musicking or this active music making with our kids and also there's many different ways to do that mm-hmm. right there's many different modes of which whether we're talking about actual like media like singing speech movement instruments but also different um, modes in terms of approaches and pedagogical tools mm-hmm. that we can use that all allow students to be active participants in the music making process. So yes. I think that all of that is is so important. Um, and this distinction between musicking as a verb versus about music is right in line with this idea of um, us not sharing our knowledge, but inviting students to experience mm-hmm. something that gives them their own knowledge and their own context from mm-hmm. which we can grab something. Because, yeah, the idea of saying this is quarter note, this is what it looks like, this is what it sounds like, um, is very abstract, right? Yeah. As opposed to something where we've been playing BB Balmobi and it's easy to just take B. Mm-hmm. B. Well, that's one sound. One sound. Bumble is two. Well, that's what this this looks like in in musical notation, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So it just happens so much quicker too. It takes so much less explanation when you can lead kids to discover in that way, right? So right. Yeah. Asking like, how many sounds do you hear on this beat? And then they can just say, I hear one sound on this beat, right? And you're like, oh, that was so much easier than me trying to sit here and explain to you from a theoretical lens what a quarter note is in this context. I want to talk about, I want to circle back to something and kind of clarify something. And then I want to highlight something else that you said. So my first (laughs) thing to, that I want to clarify is a criticism of uh, music programs that are only performance based. And this, again, is back to this idea of imitation, where according to, you know, of of this criticism, you're only teaching students how to perform and they don't get a chance to listen. They don't get a chance to think. And one of the things that is kind of embedded in this idea of musicking is that when you are not phonating, when you're not making any sound, but you're singing a song inside your head, that is still musicking. The music is still happening even if you're not producing it and if you are just listening to something and thinking about what you notice in the music that is also still musicking and what i love about this approach to active music making active musicking in in the way that you describe it Anne, is that in order for students to actively music in a conscious way they have to have really really thought so critically about what they are hearing and how it relates to all of the other sounds they have ever heard before in their entire life. And that is the process of the notational literacy, which is one tiny little blip on the learning process as a whole, right? Because after we get that 
mess out of the way, right? We just decide what we're going to call it as the class. Then we get to use it in a conscious way. And now we have a common vocabulary that we can use communally yes. as all of the musicians in this class. We can talk about it together, which means if we can talk about it together and we can do it together and we have all had the experiences to build that understanding, then we can create together. And that is gigantic. So I want to kind of just in case anyone has ever heard this criticism of like, oh, you're just teaching them how to to produce, right? We need to be more than just producers. Um, there's so much that goes into this that really calls on students to be very, very critical thinkers. Before I jump on, do you have anything to throw in there? Yeah, I have thoughts. So the, the creating thing and the common vocabulary is what allows the decision making and the editing, right? And not only the decision making and the editing and the creation compositional type process. And I don't mean composite, I mean, composition as in like create, right? Kind of yep. using them synonymously. Yep. Um, but the other thing too, is that then we can share it. And we don't have to just share it in a way that not just in a performance type way, but mm -hmm. you can also share it in a way that other kids can then identify and read it and also produce or perform or however, or create whatever you want to say about that. Right. So mm -hmm. the common vocabulary thing is huge. And that's why literacy is still very important. Right. Because we want to have that common vocabulary. It's not the end all be all. We don't start with it. We do, but we do take that minute to build build that so that we have that as a tool for all the other things we want to do in terms of producing and creating in our classrooms so yeah you're talking about you're talking about providing students many different tools that they can use on their own unique very specific musical journeys and the more tools we give them to show what they know to articulate what they know to share what they know the better we are all off you know there's this idea of uh, multiple means of representation in the uh, universal design for learning framework. And it's the idea that people need lots of different options for how to express something. So I might decide, you know, to me as Victoria, if you write a rhythm in standard Western notation, that makes so much sense to me. I love that because I know exactly what you mean when you say that. But a seven-year-old does not have, again, just because I know something and I want another kid to know it, that's not the same as letting them experience it and build that knowledge. So having so many different ways that students can show that, whether it is through movement, and they're showing long and short sounds on move, with movement. Maybe they're using a piece of string. Maybe they're writing it on the board in long and short sounds. And then again, this common vocabulary of in this class, this is what we call it. That gets everyone on the same page after, but this is the, the important part, it is after we have moved to it and it's after we have sung it and it's after we have shown it however makes sense in your perfect little seven-year-old brain then we come together and we say this is as a collective musical community this is what we're going to use moving forward you know yeah and and you know it's interesting too because if you think about it you know all of those different modes of making music that you just mentioned that kids are that we're going to hit those kids from different directions with mm, includes all the different yes. aural visual and kinesthetic stuff that we have to have in order for notation to make sense because music is not just notation it's also aural and it's also kinesthetic right yes and so yes. it's really yes, yes, yes. important that we're doing all those different modes of music making not just so that the kid who loves to play instruments gets to do that not just so the kid who loves to sing or loves to move gets to do that mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. also because every kid gets the opportunity to experience all those different learning pathways if you will in terms yep. of aural visual and kinesthetic that they have to have to make that notation make sense Yes. So that, 
we can go to I love that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of like an adjacent conversation about, well, I mean, it's something that we're definitely talking about today, but it's also its own kind of can of worms about notational literacy. But that's so directly tied into this conversation about how students learn, period. And then when it's time to have an understanding of a notational literacy piece or backing up, because in order to get to that notational literacy, you are talking, Anne, about building literacy, right? Mm -hmm. Or what you would talk about as fluency. So I want you to talk about that because that is a huge piece of this. And then the other thing uh, I need to ask you, just, uh, you know, kind of mm, gun to your head sounds too violent, but let me me just (coughs) ask you this, Anne. What uh, music methodology does active music making, what are you talking about here? Are you just talking about Kodai? Or are you just no. talking about Dalcros? What I'm talking about what? all the things. All the things? <laughs> yeah. Let me answer your fluency question first. So and then I'll get to your your gun gun to your head question. So um in terms of fluency, this is something that I picked up when I was reading Teaching General Music. Okay, so the book that's that I love, that I adore, that is um, edited by Dr. Brent Gall and Dr. Carlos Abril, um, and it has all of these different pedagogical approaches, anything you could ever think about in terms of teaching general music. And way back when, I want to say, what was it, like episode 40 or something? It might have been earlier. Thereabouts, where I had a few different experts um, on the podcast of these different pedagogical approaches, I had Dr. Gall come on, and he talked about Kodai-inspired teaching, but he also talked about this book but in that chapter his chapter about Kodai inspired teaching so that's a good question what that's why you're asking me I get it now I get the methodology tie <laughs> so anywho um the uh in his Kodai inspired teaching chapter in that book he talks a lot about building fluency and literacy so the idea is that if we were going to and this is my interpretation but mm-hmm. um you know obviously I it was it came from my conversation with him. And so the idea is that if your students come into your classroom and you do do the thing like quarter note is this many sounds, blah, blah, blah. Um, then they can translate just like I could in French class, mm. but they can't ever have that conversation exactly like what we were talking about. And so building this fluency um, kind of, I would say even prior to like a literacy moment, a discovery moment, your present moment, whatever you want to call it is so important because we have that conversational knowledge, that conversational ability, that active musicing, that active music making, even without being able to write it down. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can still, you can still do all of those things. You can still have a musical conversation. You can still do some improvisation with speech or on neutral syllables, whatever it might be using that element, using that part of speech. Right. Yes. Um, and then um, thinking about methodology, I think the reason it comes up in, and I would never want to speak for him, but I think the reason that it comes up in his chapter is because Kodai Inspired Teaching has such a misconception about being so focused on literacy. And that's the yes. only important thing. 
Yes. And that's not that's not true. <laughs> I can go ahead as someone who's taught in levels courses and had many discussions um, with Kodai pedagogues. I feel pretty confident in saying absolutely unequivocally not. But notation is important. Literacy is important, is essential for all the reasons that we've been talking about in terms of having that common vocabulary. So um, which I love. And you're going to hear me say eight million times more on this podcast because of of you saying that. So, <laughs> um, so thanks for that. But anyway. So in terms of having fluency and having different modes of music making, different pedagogical approaches that we're bringing in, methodologies, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, these mm -hmm. are all different tools to achieve fluency. So someone who is a Delcro's inspired musicer. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Is yeah. going to do things predominantly through movement. You know, mm -hmm. someone who is orphal, more orphal work inspired is probably going to do things that are more um, about improvisation, um, mm -hmm. body percussion, speech, maybe some instruments, not always, because as we know, orphal work is not about orf instruments, bard instruments, if you will, um, but more about hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> He's been talking about this a lot. <laughs> Is, um, is is more focused on this idea of creating and students mm -hmm. creating all the time. Um, somebody who is uh, music learning theory oriented. That's kind of the that's kind of my Achilles heel. I don't know as much about about MLT as I would like to, but I would say much more um, of this audiating, this um, improv mm -hmm. improvising type thing. And someone who is culture inspired, predominantly singing. Does that mean that's all those? that those people are going to do no but that's where our our um kind of like benchmark or our mm -hmm. foundation really lies in each of those different approaches and so this idea that we can build fluency through all of these different modes of active music making like i mentioned the alliance for active music making is big on using all of these to promote fluency and literacy because all of these different media all these different pedagogical approaches are hitting all of our different learners in different ways with different yep. oral, visual, and kinesthetic means of achieving literacy and fluency. Boom. <laughs> that was beautiful. Very nice. Was it? I don't know. I that was great. Know. And was I'm cool. using the word, uh, I use the word methodology to also like poke, to poke you, right? Uh, yeah. But the idea is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the idea pedagogical approach <laughs> yeah it's all good though this is a, the kodai methodology is what you're using oh. right oh okay uh but the idea and let is me can to... i can i clarify just yeah, for a minute yeah, so the, for those who are listening so the reason why that word like gives me like a little bit of a twitch is just because i think that method implies you know scientific method don't ask me what the steps are but there are very specific steps mm -hmm. i could probably figure it out but anyway um there are very specific steps um yeah kodai inspired teaching yes there's a secret but there's a lot of room for interpretation it's for it's a framework thank you so when we're talking about frameworks we're talking about pedagogical approaches there's not an orphan work method there's not a delcro's method it's yep. it's this philosophy of teaching right yes okay continue sorry right right yeah i, I want to highlight that when we have this conversation about active music making it is outside the conversation of oh well, i don't actually get along with orf people really or you're more of a Kodai person, actually, and I do not, like, get along with Kodai people, right? We're not about what box do you feel defines you? What's your box that you want to live in so that you have it as an identity, right? We're talking about outside of your own personal, I don't know, how you self-identify, right? <laughs> I self-identify as more of a Dalcros person. Well, that's that's great. But we can still, as a music education community, we can still have respectful conversations about how students 
learn best because above, if you zoom up above this framework of what labels we use to put ourselves and each other in boxes and say, oh, she mentioned ORF once, I know everything about her now, right? Above that view of each other is this view of how students learn. And that's what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. And there's no, I mean, I did like a very, very quick rundown of like the four that I'm most familiar with and didn't do any of them justice in like those 30 seconds that I talked, right? Like that's, there's not enough time in the world. That's why right, there's right, right. entire courses and programs devoted to all of that stuff. But I think um, the, the important thing to take from what you just said is that everybody wants kids making music. Yeah. Everybody wants kids to be able to speak the musical language and everybody wants to have the common vocabulary <laughs> so that we can continue creating right um with within this musical language no matter no matter our dialect i'm done with analogy <laughs> dialects and donuts that's what we should call this <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Anyway, yeah, because yeah. because if it were just about notational literacy, then there would not be a single problem in the whole world with saying this is a quarter note. Let's read the definition of a quarter note. That wouldn't that wouldn't be a problem, right? But it's about yeah. so much more. It's about the pathway that we use to get there. So, and all of this sounds exciting to me, and you seem very passionate about all of this, but it's a little bit too abstract for me. So can you pick a grade level and just walk me through what might I see? You don't have to give me like a full lesson. You're shaking your head. You don't have to give me like a full lesson, but tell me like, what are the things that I might see? Uh, and let's say before, before I have done that, this notational literacy, this, this common vocabulary, if that's not it, what the whole thing is about, then what are we spending all of our time before that doing? Yeah, right. Yeah. So pull it out of the abstract for me and make it, I don't know, make it something that I can visualize, like with I'm a documentation. Go. Ooh, the documentation, the documentary uh, filmmaker thing. Yes, I love to talk about that. So that's this whole idea of like, what do you see actually happening? Like, what's the act actual stuff going on and not the mm -hmm. actual, um, and that's how we should always be uh, framing learning targets and all that good stuff. Yeah, so I always go back to Ton TT and BB Bumblebee. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Super fun. So here's the idea. So when we are exploring a concept before we've had anything to do with literacy, that means we're hitting different modes of active music making. We're doing oral, visual, and kinesthetic stuff. So what does that first look like? It's probably singing, chanting, and playing a game. So BB mm -hmm. Bumblebee will be playing a game. I just do an elimination game with a puppet. Kids will probably tap a steady beat along with me as I'm going along, right? Um, and then Later on, they'd, they'd clap the rhythm so they could differentiate between beat and rhythm because that's really what Tan TT is, right? We're, we're doing a big beat versus rhythm type of exploration. And then eventually we would move into maybe some walk tiptoe patterns. So using the same type of speech patterns as a basis for doing a different type of kinesthetic movement that gives them the opportunity to explore um, gross motor as opposed to kind of like a, or let's say locomotor versus a non-locomotor kind sure. of thing. Yeah. Um, and then maybe have some opportunities to do their own walk tiptoe patterns, mm -hmm. right? So maybe having little like one shoe versus two shoes <laughs> printed out, right? Yeah. And like manipulating those and not only speaking and clapping them, but also moving them. So mm -hmm. then they're having a chance to do some improvisation um, and then also the kinesthetic, then we got students are creating, 
they have that RL, they have that visual with the two shoes versus one shoe. And then they have the kinesthetic where they are walking around the room as well. And so we did that through speech. We did that through, it's not BB Bumblebee's just a chant. So we're not going to sing that particular song, but there'd be other Tantiti things, right? Um, The movement. And then you could take it a step further if you wanted to, instead of walking those patterns, grab some unpitched percussion and do rhythm sticks, do some Mm -hmm. uh, hand drums or something to perform those while you put the words in your brain, right? Do some inner hearing work, Yep. Um, all that different stuff. So things that people are likely doing anyway, but maybe haven't put these labels on. I think Mm -hmm. that's an important thing to mention. Like odds are you're doing stuff like that. Maybe not all those things, but Mm -hmm. odds are you're doing stuff like that in your classroom and just not necessarily identifying it as like, oh, I'm doing all visual and kinesthetic. Oh, I'm doing movement. Oh, I'm doing like making sure you're hitting all of those boxes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But I think that these are the things that when we were thinking about teaching music in kind of this discovery model type of way, um, we automatically do. Yeah, that was a quick. Yes. I love that. So, things. so you're telling me that based off of our warm up routine, students are going to walk in and we're going to do the warm up routine, and then you're going to have them play the game and then go through all of those steps in that one lesson, and <laughs> then do you label it at the end of that lesson? You're so funny. <laughs> no, that's over the course of many, many, many weeks, okay. many lessons. Nah, not many, many, but a few, right? Definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, so yeah. we have lots of different points of contact. Uh, and and the reason I want to kind of highlight that students have many different experiences, and I want to highlight what you said about like there would be other songs that we're using to teach this concept. It's not like in a methodology book. Again, that word methodology, right? If you're to open up and say, this is the song that we're using to teach dynamics, and that's your little etude from, you know, whatever method book you're using about how to teach dynamics or, you know, staccato or whatever it is. And then you move on to the next page, right? This is something where experiences build, right? So the yes. next time you do BB Bumblebee, you are giving students the opportunity to connect their previous knowledge. And now we're moving to it, right? Or now we're playing it on rhythm sticks. But there are all these, it's it cycles through, it sequences through all of these Uh, different classes in these bite-sized increments that are developmentally appropriate for what students, how much time they can spend on that specific learning experience. So it's not a one-class thing, right? We have lots of opportunities to develop that understanding. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, exactly. And you know, if you do something with BB Bumblebee and then you move to icons with like walk tiptoe type of patterns Mm -hmm. and then you bring it back, and when you're doing some deriving things with BB Bumblebee, you start with the icon. So it's just, oh, it's just like we did with the shoes with Walk Tiptoe. Let's do that with our song BB or our chant BB Bumblebee, right? Mm-hmm. And then when it comes time to actually have that translation, that's when you take a minute and you say, when we have one B over one heartbeat, we call that a ta. When we right. have two Bs over a heartbeat, we, that's two sounds on a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. That's what we call TT, right? Mm-hmm. And then you practice that and they have that context. And then as soon as you're done with that part, you can be like, wait a minute, we have walk tiptoe and then it moves right. right into that, that more identify, read and write stuff. That is all the translation piece of bringing that, meeting the fluency literacy stuff all together. So then they can go and create, right? Yes. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Okay. I think this is a really, I think this is a really great framing and I like listening to you talk about it. Which is why I can like kind of poking you to like talk about it more, right? Like, is it all in one lesson? And you're like, oh, please. Uh, uh, talk to me though about some areas of tension that we might experience this 
year in terms of what if I cannot sing and dance to Alabama Gal? What happens if I can't sing or if I can't sing the whole time? Uh, do you have a thought about how active music making, how this approach is flexible in the face of restrictions? I do, but I want to hear you talk about it too, because you gave lots of beautiful examples of this kind of thing last year. Can you go first? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so this is, again, like this conversation about active music making, it ties into so many other things, including, and, and this is what you were talking about as well, about how like all of these different experiences are, are happening uh, over multiple lessons, that ties into long-range planning. And mm -hmm. the reason you chose BB Bumblebee in the first place, and you said it right off the bat, you were like, I use this in connection to Ta and Titi, right? Mm -hmm. So because you know your pedagogical goal, and because you have studied all of these different uh, pathways to music and pathways to uh, help students build understanding. If I were to say, let's BB Bumblebee is a bad example, but if we were to take, oh, oh gosh, I don't know, Apple Tree, right? Mm. You could do your whole sequence that you just described, you could do that without ever singing and playing the game to Apple Tree because your students' musical experiences were not dependent on the, uh, I want to say ability to sing, but like the the parameters that allow singing you know what I mean so yeah. because you had clarity because you had clarity in your pedagogical goal and because you were not just teaching quarter notes and eighth notes by singing and playing the game that wasn't that was not the learning experience that was like the start of the learning right. experience and then because because you have all of these different avenues available to you we're doing a lot more than just singing and playing the game so f when when i think about s restrictions on singing or restrictions on movement or on playing recorder i love to come back to what's the purpose of the activity and then if i have all of these avenues of active music making and i just take away one well, that's fine, right? And if I take away three, it's still like, it's definitely not ideal. And I don't want to like Pollyanna our way out of like, we're not going to optimistic thinking our way out of all of the hurt and we shouldn't. Right, right. But it's not, uh, we were never, we were never teaching how to sing Apple Tree. We were using Apple Tree to get to a musical understanding through lots of different pathways of musicking. Yeah. Sandy, you'd explain that way better than me. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is like, is like, so if you have singing, if you have speech, if you have active mm -hmm. listening mm -hmm. and you have, you have movement, you have locomotor movement, you have non-locomotor mm -hmm. movement, you have creative movement, you have body mm -hmm. percussion, you have unpitched percussion, you have um, pitch percussion, you have, I mean, it's not just like five, right? It's yes. like within each of these different modes, I think this is what you're getting at. You have all of these different things, even within singing, yep. you have me singing for my students, me having individual students, me echo singing, me doing all of these different things that maybe you know I know the specific restriction mm -hmm. or modification or however you want to frame it of that. not being able to sing in front of your students in your class hurts and I think mm -hmm. that's what you're getting at that's very frustrating for us because a lot of our music classroom is singing and playing 
right? Intentional play, like I can, I yep, can yep, yep. give all the, all the caveats there that we want to make sure that we're saying, but I think everybody has an understanding if they're listening to this podcast, like, okay, like if we're singing and playing, it, it is with intention and it hurts because that's like the foundation of our classroom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I think the point about what you, you're saying is that with that intention, there's not just five other pathways other than singing, but there's yep. probably something within singing that you can grab the essence of. And I'm speaking very abstractly and I apologize for that, but you can grab the essence of and still use in your classroom, whether it's recording yourself singing a song so that they can still play a version of the game mm-hmm. or clap the rhythm sticks along, or you playing um, a melodic instrument so that they can still hear the melody or hear the melodic contour or whatever yep. it might be. And so I love this idea of like, okay, cool. I can't use the song the way that I've always done it before, Mm -hmm. but what can I do that still captures the essence of the curricular objective, but also the curricular objective with my kids actually doing a musical thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Love it. Cool. Okay. That's our time. Yeah. For today. There's a lot more that we could talk about. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it is our time. <laughs> because I fed my children donuts. <laughs> so now right. they're bouncing off. We can just be real about it. <laughs> That's awesome. But, um, no. So this is fun. This was good. Um, I hope that this is helpful for folks kicking off the new year. These ideas that we've shared in the last few podcasts mm-hmm. that we've had. So yeah, good times. And this is something that, like you said, this is an integral part of your philosophy. This is like a conversation about how Anne views music education. And you have a lot of other resources. Do you want to, do you want to shout out anything that people, if they're like, interesting, they didn't teach me how to teach this way in my undergrad methods course, right? Is there anything that off the top of your head you want to point people towards from your resources? Yeah, if you had to, um, my, my, my Molesky, <laughs> my website, annemolesky.com, um, and just click, click around there, you'll probably find some stuff, or you could head to courses specifically, and there is a, um, like a free guide that you can download um, to get signed up to get more information about like all the things. So you'll know when new podcast episodes come out, when um, TSS, the sequencing solution, which is um, my big program that talks about all these things um, mm-hmm. when that's open for registration again. Um, and that's just kind of a good way to get tuned into everything, pun intended, um, <laughs> that's happening <laughs> inside of Anacrusic Land. What about you, Victoria? You have stuff too. Um, let's see. You can Google Victoria Bowler Active Music. Let me just make sure. Victoria <laughs> Bowler Active Music. Yeah. And you'll come up with uh, all sorts of things about active listening. You'll have an active music curriculum post. You'll have stuff about long range planning. So yeah, just Google Victoria Bowler active music and you'll find all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I have a podcast episode from like years ago that says what is active music making. Hmm. Um, but I think, I also think that like that, that episode, that podcast episode of, um, if you're listening um, on my podcast, to this episode i'll link it in the show notes but that episode with brent gall is the one that i always point folks to because i think it was just such a good conversation mm. um about this idea of fluency and how we build it through these different experiences within within our music classrooms so, that is episode yeah. 22 oh look at you oh that was back in the day holy cow 
What was that like? Two? I don't even know. I don't want to know. It's fine. Like two thousand. It was September thirteenth. Do you want to guess? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty eighteen. So not yeah. that long ago. Feels like a long time ago. But anywho, all right. Well, it's been good chatting with you, Victoria, per usual. And I always appreciate the little nuggets, the nuggets you give to make me think a little bit more critically about thinking critically about <laughs> music <laughs> education. Say that way. That's fun. All right, Anne, this has been a blast. Thanks. <laughs>